In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Bible is the story of the Holy Spirit's departure from and return to the human race. Now, I realize that the Bible is commonly thought of as the story of Jesus. After all, Jesus himself says that the law and the prophets testify to him. But Jesus does not work alone. And so it is also possible to tell the story of salvation by tracing the movements of the Holy Spirit through the scriptures. This particular way of reading the scriptures is modeled for us by Cyril of Alexandria's magisterial commentary on John. In his discussion of the significance of Jesus' baptism, he launches into a telling of the story of salvation, culminating in Jesus' baptism. And it is Cyril's version of the story of salvation that serves as at least a partial inspiration of what I'm about to tell you. The Spirit was there at the beginning. In the first verses of Genesis, hovering over the waters at creation. The Spirit was there in Genesis chapter 2, when God breathed into the dust of the ground and Adam became a living being. When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit in Genesis chapter 3, they received a curse that was a reversal of Adam's creation in Genesis 2. Dust you are, and to dust you will return. The union of earth and God's breath that originally constituted Adam was now dissolved. Today we call this event the fall. But it may be a little hasty to refer to the events of only Genesis 3 as the fall. Because in Genesis, there, the, the eating of the fruit is but the first in a series of events that get progressively worse and worse until God finally wipes life off the face of the planet. So maybe it would be better to think of the human race as tripping in Genesis 3, but it doesn't quite fall until Genesis 6. I mean, think about what comes in between there. What do you have in Genesis 4? You have the first murder. Cain rises up and he kills his brother Abel. And as bad as that is, and it certainly seems worse than eating a fruit, but as bad as that is, at least Cain has the decency to try to hide it. Unlike his descendant Lamech, who openly boasts about his murders. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Things are getting worse. Until finally, by the time we get to chapter 6, the sons of God are marrying the daughters of men, and God says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. 
his days shall be 120 years. The human race finally got so bad that the spirit left. Now, it's true that in the immediate context of that passage, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, that the passage is serving as an explanation of the shortened human lifespan. No more Methuselahs who live 900 plus years. And if you look only at the immediate context of Genesis 6, it's not entirely clear that this is a pivotal event in salvation history at all. Perhaps it's just a parenthetical comment about human lifespan. But once you begin to trace the movements of the Spirit through the entire scriptures, it quickly becomes evident that this passage, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh, is a key text in the Old Testament. Because this is the first time in the Bible, where spirit and flesh are opposed to each other. In Genesis 2, they're in harmony. God breathes into Adam, into the dust of the ground, and he becomes a living being. But now there's hostility. Think of Paul's admonition in Romans 8. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Paul is not saying anything new here. He is merely developing a theme that was introduced already in Genesis 6. The Holy Spirit and the flesh are hostile to each other. Indeed, the Holy Spirit has departed. Now, to say that the Spirit departs from the human race in Genesis 6 is not to say that the Spirit plays no role in salvation history in the Old Testament. Of course, the Spirit visits the prophets. David has some acquaintance with the Spirit because he says, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And yet, you, even in those words, you can hear the problem. David is aware that at any moment, the spirit could go. And that is the human dilemma. The one thing we need the most is the very thing that we can never hold on to. Without life, we are nothing but corpses. And yet life is fleeting. The spirit who gives life is like the wind. You can chase the wind if you want to, but you can't catch it. And you certainly can't keep it. Or the spirit is like a bird, the most beautiful bird in the world, a possession that you want, no, that you need more than anything else. And yet, when you reach out your hand to catch this bird, it flits away, leaving you empty-handed and with a void in your soul. 
It flies away like the dove that Noah released from the ark. That dove flew around looking for a place to land, but it didn't find any. All it could see was the watery curse that covered the face of the earth. It circled the heavens and it searched until finally one day it saw a man standing in the water. A man who had committed no sin and in whose mouth was no, in, whose, in whose mouth was no deceit. And the spirit descended on Jesus. And John tells us, remained on him. And the way John puts that echoes Genesis 6. You can hear the echo a little bit better if you take Genesis 6 from the Septuagint. My spirit will not remain in these men forever, for they are flesh. And John says, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. The dove has at last found a resting place. In Christ, the Spirit is once again rooted in our nature. The baptism of Jesus opens up a flood of the Spirit in the New Testament as Jesus later breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. As Jesus sends the Holy Spirit from heaven on the day of Pentecost, fulfilling the words of the prophet, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. No longer are the spirit and the flesh opposed to each other. Because in Jesus, our race finally has a sinless man on whom the Holy Spirit can remain. Now, let us be clear. Jesus did not receive the Holy Spirit because he needed the Holy Spirit. After all, he's the giver of the Spirit. But how, how then does the giver of the Spirit turn around and receive the Spirit? What sense does that make? This was a question that was posed with special sharpness in the Arian controversy of the 4th and 5th centuries. The Arian argument is simple. If he needs the Spirit, he is not God. And the church's answer is just as simple. He didn't receive the Spirit because he needed the Spirit, but because we did. The Spirit had departed from the human race because of the evil intentions of the human heart. But in the person of Christ, the Spirit is once again part of our core human identity. No longer a bird whose flight is triggered by the snap of a twig or an evil thought. In Christ, we have life as a permanent possession. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. 
at the baptism of Jesus, the curse of Genesis 6 is undone. And the Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, is back. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.